Hello, and welcome to ng-build-pod, where we share with you our knowledge of Angular, all the mistakes we've made and some of the things we've gotten right. I'm Chris Kamak, and with me as always is the magnanimous John Graham. We are both full-stack Angular developers that love to share and be part of the developer community. And we both work here at Miles Technologies in Lumberton, New Jersey, on the Engine team. And we spent the last several years building out our Angular template for the Miles software division. So, John, uh, let's start off. What have you been up to in the past couple of weeks? First of all, I really don't like you switching things up on each podcast by uh, oh. changing your intro. You're throwing me off, Chris. You know, uh, as your as your teammate on Engine, you should get to know now that uh, I'm always going to do whatever I can to throw you off. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, I think. It's probably a good thing. Um no, but, you know, uh, I guess being inside a little bit more, I've been focusing on my setup. Uh, so, you know, I've had the same computer for six years, the same chair for nine years, uh, and sitting in them all day working remotely a lot has made me realize that uh, it's time to upgrade some stuff. So I've been doing a lot of research and Googling and looking into maybe getting some new chairs. I got the new chair last night, so testing it out right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be upgrading the computer. So just excited about some some changes to my setup that it's been a very, very long time since I've seen. Um, that's really it. I mean, you know, other than trying to walk around outside as much as I can, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I've heard you take computer... epic walks now, right? Yeah, true. That is true. Uh, but uh, I mean, a new computer setup is is really exciting. So uh, uh, kudos to you and uh, good luck with that. Yeah, I don't know anything. Like I write software a lot, but I, I really don't follow the hardware side of things too closely. So, you know, immersing myself back into it after like five years has been you know, a bit of a challenge is like, there's so many differences and changes and things like that. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm learning as best I can, but, uh, it's a bit of a, bit of a struggle. Uh, I wish I could just like, you know, justify paying somebody to just put a computer together for me. But the fact that I know how makes it so that I'll, I'll never do that. Now I got to learn all this stuff, but you know. yeah, I can understand that. Um, as far as me though, uh, I've actually, I've been trying to up my game um, domestically um, because uh, Aaron is uh, well as a as an attending out there in the world during coronavirus. She is uh, she's on the front lines, and uh, it's a real scary situation. And uh, there's a lot of things to worry about, a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty. And and for me, uh, you know, supporting her has got to be. priority number one. It also gives me something to focus on while I'm not working, um, which is good, you know, something to something to focus on rather than dwelling on the situation. Uh, so, yeah, that's just what I've been up to. It's been working out really well. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, she's uh, she's doing God's work, as they say. Um, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I'm complaining about my chair over here, so perspective on things is pretty important to understand. <laughs> Um, yeah, when it comes to a, a situation of suffering, I feel like I can never win uh, in any <laughs> in any domestic situation with uh, with my wife. It's just well, not possible. I mean, there could she's, be. She's she's uh, she's really you know putting everything on the line, and I'm like, 
you know, should this button I'm making be blue <laughs> or green? I just don't know. Uh, well, you know, we're making the hard decisions over here, Chris. I guess so. So what are we talking about today? Uh, we're going to be doing the testing. That's the main topic for today. Yeah, definitely so, some testing. And this is something that John's uh, really, really good at, and uh, he spent a lot of time with it. Uh, but just to frame out the topic a little bit, um, uh, we're going to be doing uh, unit testing specifically within Angular. And, and how does that work and what's it all about? Um, you know, testing is one of the best ways that developers can be confident that their code is working as they intended. You know, when you're writing unit tests, uh, there's a lot of things to consider. And today we're going to be breaking down what a test is, what are the pieces that make it up uh, for unit testing within Angular. But before we do that, uh, we do have some quick tips we want to get in. So, John, what is your quick tip of the day? Yeah, I'm going to talk about a productivity tool. Uh, that I've come to love over the past uh, year or so, and I've uh, attempted to impose on other people as well as you do when you find a productivity tool that works for you. Uh, and that's called Dynalist, um, D-Y-N-A-L-I-S-T. Uh, it's just another like list app. I know there's like a million of them. So, you know, it doesn't do anything particularly different. Um, but the thing that I do like about it is, you know, it, it's like a real clean organization structure. It doesn't do too much. It's basically just a, a, a you know, a way to take notes. Uh, and I take a lot of notes. I've always been a big note taker. I used to do it through like a, a Git repo, um, which, which worked kind of okay. Um, but I, I like how this like enforces a format and structure that I don't have to try to conform to on my own. Uh, I like that you can share things with others. So if like I write a bunch of notes in a meeting and I want to share it with you, I can just click the share button and give you access to it a lot like, a, you know, like a Google Doc or something like that. Yeah, and a while back you uh, you turned me on to this. So so we actually do uh, share lists with each other. And it's, you know, in that way, it's kind of like a Google Doc, but uh, you can you can both edit it or just have it as a view setting. I really like it for that, too. Yeah, and like I don't like Google Doc has like a lot of features and functionality, so like it's hard to just do like a simple thing in Google Docs because it it imposes like spacing and formatting and all of these things that you just really don't care about. <coughs> you know, we're organizing this podcast through Dynalist, so um, I, I think the simplicity of it is really nice. Um, the last thing that I really use it for a lot, which I think is really helpful, is you know when I'm trying to like you know, architect a solution or plan an idea or, um, you know, write out like a roadmap, like do we do the technical roadmap, stuff like that. Uh, it, when you pay for the premium, which they, they sucked me into this year, you get uh, the mind map view, um, which is just a way to change the way that your list is displayed into kind of like uh, a graph of all of your thoughts. Uh, and I've really been enjoying that for helping me like, you know, figure out if I've thought through this avenue well enough or if, um, you know, this area is lacking. I haven't really, you know, explained this well enough. So usually I start here whenever I'm designing, architecting, you know, trying to explain something. Um, I'll come in here and just start writing out my thoughts. And it really helps me just kind of get them all out and organize them and, and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's it really sounds cool pretty tool. cool. Yeah, yeah, it okay. sounds sounds interesting. Uh, I haven't actually seen that one. Maybe you'll show it to me sometime. 
Yeah, yeah, it's one of those premium features. So, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. I haven't gone premium yet. You've only got me on the free version. <laughs> I, I did it for free for over a year, and uh, I really liked it. So um figured I would contribute to the cause. Excellent. Um, yeah, so that's that's been uh that's been the thing that I've been really jamming on. How about you? What uh what's your tip of the day or quick tip? So, um thing I've been working on lately is uh how to take uh some of the uh packages that we've created with our Angular libraries and build those into more modular pieces. Uh the idea being if you bring in a package, let's say that this package is the um authentication package or something like that. Uh, you know, you may have a situation where you want to have certain portions of the authentication package loaded within your app, but not all of them. And uh, normally, ng Packager with a right out of the box setup is uh, an all or nothing module. Like you bring it in, you got all the code. So there it is. It's all loaded up in your app. And if it's 60K, that's, that's what it is. It's 60K sitting there in your app. Um, whereas uh, what I've realized is you can actually do secondary entry points, which allows for your own package to actually have code splitting of its modules. So you could say the service for the authentication piece is its own you know, split out section and the guards are a whole different section and interceptors are a different section. You could, you could then pull in only the pieces you need uh, which is uh, a really nice feature. So uh, just a, a shout out to the code splitting uh, within ng Packager, which is really just about making what's known as a, a secondary entry point. Um, you could just, uh, I'll actually put some uh, uh, show note pieces in uh, for the um, code splitting or the, the um, article I used, uh, but uh, it's, it's definitely uh, something good and uh, something to consider out there. So um, as we move into the main topic, um, I just want to say the, um, uh, the, the unit testing that we've done has really saved us. And it's been, it's been very influential to the way that we uh, work with things because uh, being able to have unit testing in place, as, you, as we said in the intro portion, you know, it's, it's about having confidence, right? It's like it's about saying, um, that I know I don't have to worry about something uh, if I go and make changes to it. And for us as an engineering department, making a template and lots and lots of packages, you know, this is huge. Uh, the ability to make changes on something that I haven't worked on in over six months uh, and feel confident after those changes that it's, uh, it's good to go and we're ready to push. You know, that, that's, a, that's a big feature. Yeah, I mean, the confidence is huge. The other thing I think is really uh, nice is the uh, the agility it gives you, right? So, you know, imagine if you had to test every single thing after making a change. Uh, you're not going to get that change done very quickly. And now, you know, for a lot of work, that's fine because you plan it out and, you know, you have a release date and, you know, you, you know what you need to do. But, you know, in our case, like you mentioned, we're, we're pushing these packages out, letting other developers use them. You know, we do make mistakes, you know, say there's a bug or an issue. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, wait three weeks to get a patch out. You, you got to do it now. Um, and so, you know, not only does the test give you reliability that you didn't introduce anything that broke, um, but it also makes it so that, you know, you, you know, I, I can't tell you the last time I actually like opened the browser to make sure that something was working. You know what I mean? Like I just run the tests and if the tests work, um, you know, they've worked in the past and they continue to work in the future. And I have just a high 
degree of confidence in them. Um, so I can tell you the last time I did it, it was uh, on a project where there wasn't unit testing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the only way to do it with that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I think like uh, what we want to kind of start with here is just um, an overview of kind of what a unit test look like looks like in an Angular application. Um, you know, what is the context of like the the pieces of of Angular that are going to be tested and when should you test and what types of things do you test? So I think we want to start off by just talking about some of the scenarios and then we'll go uh, a little bit deeper into the anatomy and pieces of the test so that if somebody's unfamiliar with it, they'll uh, they'll be able to kind of understand uh, how to connect the dots. Um, so, I mean, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the things, like what do you test in Angular? Uh, I mean, generally, you're going to test all the individual pieces that you're building. So um, components, services, directives, you know, uh, any of those individual pieces uh, are really kind of like targets for tests. Now, um, that may be one testing file for a component, but the individual tests themselves are going to test uh, methods, properties, uh, logic within uh, the code there that you're you're doing. So, for instance, let's say that you have uh, ng on init within a component, and uh, you want to make sure that when the uh, component is brought online, that uh, the ng on init uh, does the things that you've coded it to do. Um, now, uh, are you going to test that ng on init fires? No, because that's part of Angular's framework. So you don't need to test that Angular does its job. You just need to test that when ng on init is called, that it does all the things you expect it to do and that the outcome is what you expect it. Yeah, so like wiring up, you know, properties and things like that, you know, and that's good because like, you know, normally those will all be fine. But like the key with a test is, you know, you're not only testing for the exact behavior, you're putting in confidence that if, you know, say you make a change later on and you don't think about that ng on init, you know, it could cause a cascading issue, right? So it's good to kind of throw those tests in there to make sure that that they catch those, um, you know, those simple wiring scenarios uh, so that you don't, you know, introduce, uh, you know, new or different uh, issues down the road. Uh, and, you know, I think some of the other things you, you test is you can test, um, you know, your observables, you know, because a lot of times observables are going to return uh, different results. Maybe you have a behavior subject, Right, and you expect it uh, after you initialize the application to have a certain value. I know, you know, this is kind of the case with um, with our current user, right? So, like when you log in, you want the current user to be set to a certain value. Um, so you can use unit tests to um, to validate observables are doing what you expect them to do as well, which is which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly uh, a lot of the things that are involved. I mean, there's a lot of um, pieces to how this gets done though and there's a lot of uh things to keep in mind as you go about it and we're going to get over a lot of that um but i think at this point let's probably uh talk about some of the um very very basic examples that we have uh to sort of give like uh, concrete examples that are simple and then we can talk about the anatomy of what's involved in doing that and some of the thoughts does that sound like a, a good direction yeah, I think that's great. I think um, you know, in 
there's kind of two main things that you test in Angular. That's components and services, right? So I think if we maybe gave a gave a quick uh, example or you know semi simple example of a, a component test and a service test, it might help people understand the scenarios we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I have a I have a component test here at the ready, actually. So let's let's sort of frame out what this would be doing. So let's imagine that we have a component. And if this component is responsible for producing a numeric input, so it's an input box that we intend to only work with numeric uh, uh, data. And in that scenario, we probably have a few things that we want to do. We want to we want to say that there's a certain precision or scale uh, that a number should be, you know. And if I say that that scale is two, well, then that might be currency because now I can have you know ten cents as an example. Um, but if we're working with something that is a scale zero, then, you know, I'm talking about an integer at that point. Yeah. So, precision sorry, and scale in the, uh, JavaScript world is more like, you know, decimal rounding kind of stuff, right? So how many decimal places do you want to go to, um, when you're looking at things, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, if we have something like that, well, then we probably want to ensure that if someone... Uh, as a user were to put in a value uh, that was, say, had a couple of decimal places and our scale was set to zero, that that pr this component is properly going to round that scenario and uh, put the right amount of decimal places in, 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 in spot. So, so this is our test. So uh, if we were talking about it in these terms, we would say when we go to set value on this component, it really should round the values. Uh, to zero decimal places if the scale was set to zero. That's kind of the test I'm framing right now. And so what we would do is we would uh, set a value. In this case, for this test, I'm setting 5.89. And then I'm setting the scale to zero. And what do I expect as a value? I expect six because it should round that up. It should round up 5.89 to be six and have no decimal places after that. So uh, once we set those two pieces and we call the um, method that handles this, which is actually called set value, uh, then we can expect that the controls value should equal the expected value of six. And so as long as that's true, as long as that passes, then I know that that portion of this component is working. And you usually break your tests into small pieces like that. Like I only want to test one thing at a time. I don't need to test that the entire thing works all at once. Yeah. And really, you know, we want to keep them very small so that, um, you know, so that the tests are easy to maintain, right? So this way you go, you change one piece, you don't have to change 50 or 60 tests um, because you're, you know, uh, you're dealing with a very fixed and focused thing. So it's, it's good to keep them small. Plus, it's easier to test, the, you know, rounding versus like, you know, all of the things involved in math. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like I'm giving you this as a value. I expect that I'm getting that out. So, I mean, that's 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 really at the end of the day what most unit testing is about. Here's the scenario. Here's what I expect to happen once this is done running or this logic has taken uh, taken place. So, I mean, let's move on to the, the service one. Uh, so, if we're talking about a service, I'm going to use something from our last episode on authentication. Uh, we're going to talk about our auth service. And uh, in the auth service, we have a method there uh, that's called login. And what that's going to do is it's going to uh, check with the backend API to verify that uh, 
this login username password combination is is correct and that this is a successful login and if so it returns back a token and we were talking in our last episode about how one of the things that we do in this auth service is when someone logs in we actually don't just return the observable of that http call and that's it we return an observable that has a pipe tap in there and the pipe tap is saying if this is successful when someone tries to log in i want to intercept and sort of get in the middle of that situation and say okay here's the token that i got returned i want to save that in a current token uh, observable essentially uh in the system so so this thing is not just returning an observable of the http call it's also responsible if that is called and successful to save some of that portion of that value so that the auth service is aware of that value in the future. So in this case, what we're going to test is we're going to test the login should call save token if it's success, if, it, if it was successful. So what we're going to do is we're going to make that call and then we're going to look to see if save token actually was called. Do we need to test that save token did its thing? Not necessarily. I mean, there's probably going to be a separate test later to ensure that save tokens logic does what it's supposed to do. In this scenario, we're just gonna say when login happens and it's successful, we wanna ensure that something told save token to run. And that's really what we're testing in that scenario. So those are like two quick examples. What do you think, John? Anything we need to cover more on that? No, oh, yeah, I think that hopefully that like makes it clear the, the types of things that you'll be testing um you know when you start to get into it a little bit more obviously those are specific scenarios so you just need to su need to substitute you know your um scenario that you're trying to test um and i think you know there is some gotchas in there with you know you said about testing the save token which i'll hold off until we get to the gotchas at the end um but uh, i do want to circle back on on that one in particular because i think it's a lesson that we kind of learned um, while we were doing tests. Uh, the one other thing I want to bring up before we dive into some of the anatomy of testing is mm -hmm. just a different like thought processes around testing. And this isn't really unique to Angular. Uh, it's more, you know, um, you know, programming level paradigms, um, which is uh, BDD and TDD. Uh, BDD being behavior-driven testing and TDD being test-driven development. Um, so these are two really big uh, types of testing. The main differences between the two is in BDD, you write the code to perform a specific behavior. So like you, in the example of the authentication, you have this uh, observable that does a, um, a call to save token in a pipe tap and then returns a value. So you would write that logic out and then you would circle back and write the test as you described it to make sure that... Um, you know, it was calling save token, things like that. That's a behavior-driven test. So you're you're right. letting the behavior determine how you write the test. The other style, which you know, personally, I'm a I'm more of a fan of, but I know you know uh, it doesn't come without its controversy, is test-driven development, and that's where you actually write the test first so that it fails, and then you can circle back and write the logic so that it succeeds. So in my case, I would write a test like the test you described, expecting it to call save token, and it would fail because I didn't write any logic in the pipe tab to call save token. And I go back and I write that logic. Now that test is passing. 
Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you would pick one or the other. I don't think we're going to plan on going into it much more than just introducing the concepts here. Um, but you can certainly do some research on uh, BDD versus TDD and the different styles of, of um, you know, why you may want to write one way versus another or w what kind of style fits best in, in each of those. Yeah, and there's a lot of people in both camps. Uh, they're They're pretty... Usually, if someone's a rather extreme on that, you know, then then you know you know up front what they're what they're saying. You know, for instance, uh, there are certain people that would say that test-driven development is the only way to develop. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I there's there's good cases to be made on all sides. Uh, as with anything, usually the best answer is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So let's uh, let's go into maybe some of the more um, you know detailed parts of a test. So we have some scenarios. Hopefully, get get an idea of like when you would write a test. Let's just talk about the the actual components of the test uh, first. Uh, and what we're going to use is we're going to be focused on the defaults that Angular provides. Um, these are not by any means requirements. You can use whatever testing framework you want, as long as it's JavaScript, uh, and you can use your own test runners. You can do all of that. You can change it. But I'm just going to stick to the ones that you get when you do an ng-new, um, because I think that's what most people uh, are going to be familiar with or, or would like to become more familiar with. Um, so the first important thing with, you know, the anatomy of a test is actually how do you run a test, right? So typically when you generate a component or a new application, unless you decide uh, to define otherwise, you get a unit test with the component. And it's it's not a very useful test. It's just basically like, hey, this component uh, compiles or, hey, this uh, service works, that kind of thing. Um, and those are in a, a spec file, right? Is that the extension? Yeah, .spec.ts. Um, you know, that's the extension that the, um, the test runner is going to be looking for when it, mm. when it loads up the test. Um, so speaking of the, the command that you run to actually get that test runner to fire and go look for tests and execute them is ng test. Um, so when you run ng test, um, under the hood, that's using something called karma. Karma is a test runner. Uh, so what it does is it executes your tests for you. Uh, it also gives you a nice little like browser pop-up. Uh, view rather than just in the console. You don't need that, but you know some people like to look at that versus the console view. Um, and so that's going to trigger the test to run. Now, what tests are running? You know, what is being run? So Karma is the test runner. It's what actually compiles and, and executes the test. The tests, though, are actually written in a in a framework called Jasmine. Uh, and you may hear of like Jasmine, Jest, Mocha. These are all big, popular uh, JavaScript testing frameworks. They all have a lot of similarities between them. I've gone between like I've Googled something for Jasmine and gotten a Mocha answer. That's how similar they are. Um, you know, and they and it usually is like a very you know similar or the same response. Um, so that's the good thing is that at least there's some similarities there. Uh, and you know, Jasmine tests have a couple different. Um, features or components that that make up a test right so karma is the test runner jasmine is the test uh and like you were describing where you may you know let's just take the numeric control example um you were testing the precision right that's one piece of that numeric control right but it may have more uh more pieces that you want to test or you know certainly different scenarios you want to test with that precision right like maybe you don't want to pass anything in you want to pass in something and expect to round up you want to pass in something expect to round down 
Um, so what Jasmine gives you, which is really nice, it gives you a way to group those tests in a describe statement. So you could say describe, you know, testing the precision, right? And then you can write a bunch of tests inside of that uh, that all test different precision scenarios, and they're grouped real nicely in the karma output when the test runner fires. Right. I also want to jump in and just say that you can you can even have describe blocks that are nested. Uh, so you can have a describe that says, I'm going to test um, methods. And then you can have a describe within there that says, I'm going to test a specific method. And then you can have multiple tests against it. So these things are um, nestable in a way that makes it so that uh, you can really understand what you're working on and you know collapse them down because those files can get kind of large. Yeah, and and those are all just organizational pieces of testing. Like you said, you know, you could write one unit test that tests everything. You know what I mean? And then you don't need to deal with all this organization. But you know, uh, hopefully, uh, we're you know, you've listened to some of our other podcasts and heard that it's good to keep things clean and simple and and uh, having you know uh, small amounts of responsibility. Um, so you can do the same thing with with testing. Um, so after you have the describe and you have the test itself, which usually is prefixed with an it, IT, um, the only actual other piece that's important to the test is to have an assertion. Um, so with unit testing, there's the three A's uh, is a really common thing you hear. Uh, arrange, act, assert. Um, so arrange is where you set up the scenario that you want to have happen. Act is where you actually trigger the scenario to occur. And then assert is where you validate that your expected outcome um, was written. Um, so th those are really good things to, to rem remind yourself while you're writing tests. Um, but those are the basic anatomy that you need to actually um, to get a unit test to run and, and do something for you. Um, so any any other like components or pieces that you think are important to, to bring up, Chris? I mean, the major thing I think we could add here is... Um that you have these describe blocks, your tests are inside of it blocks. So it's like describe the set value, and then you usually write it should do something. And uh, one of the reasons that I really recommend using the nested structure where you have um, uh, things described really well and very small tests is because when you get an error back that says something failed, and it, let's say you didn't know where it was or what happened, it's all those describes and all those it's that combine down to one message. So if you said, I'm describing, I'm going to be testing methods, and I'm describing that I'm going to be testing specifically the set value method, and then you said, it should do this, then if that were to fail, the message in the console to tell you that it failed would actually say all of those words in succession. So you can really narrow down what is the problem right from the uh, minute that it or the second that it fails so I, I think it's very good to to do that sort of nested structure yeah and like because uh, if you think about it and you know off the top of my head i rattled off three scenarios alone for this precision unit test on the numeric text box so that's one piece of functionality that has three tests uh, associated to it so when you really get into testing and this becomes a a big part of your um your code base, you're going to have lots of tests 
uh, at least relative to the logic that you have. You know, obviously the the overall number depends on the the complexity and size of your application, but for logic, you'll typically have you know exponential amounts of tests that you're going to run. Um, so you know, it's important to organize your code so you know what's going on. It's equally, if not more, important to organize your tests because there's so much more involved in that uh, just for a simple piece of logic. Yeah, I agree. Cool. So, um, so those are kind of the the building blocks of an, an Angular test, uh, and you'll use those at, in any sort of testing scenario. Um, so, I think with services, it's pretty uh, pretty similar to just using those pieces. But I want to talk a little bit about when you're testing components and a few other things that make up the. Um, the anatomy of what a test is. So you could have these describe blocks and you could have these it blocks, but the challenge you have when you're testing a component is that it's a it's a piece of Angular, right? So you know you know that you can't just write a component and stick it on a screen and it will just work, right? You're going to get the first error uh, that everybody gets when they start off in Angular world and they don't use the CLI. They just copy and paste, which is a component not declared in a module. Right. So if it's not declared in a module, uh, Angular never picks it up. It doesn't know what you're trying to render uh, in HTML and, and all all things go haywire. Right. So this is just kind of basically how Angular does it. Um, so one of the things that Angular gives you, which is like really awesome, I, I think it's really great how this fr- the framework of Angular tries to um, uh, tries to like give tools to the teams that are using it to test, right? Like not every framework like thinks about that. And I know like you and I have even been talking recently about when we're building our packages, exposing things that will help people write tests for these packages um, because you know it, it can become a bear. So uh, Angular gives you something called the test bed. And what the test bed does is it basically just creates a dynamic module uh, and it mimics what a normal <coughs> ng module would be doing. Um, so if you think about the scenario with your numeric control, um, say you have some service that's handling the formatting of the currency or something like you have a pipe, right? Like a currency pipe or something like that. Uh, those are things that are going to need to be provided in a module so that they can be injected into the component when you go to use it. And the test bed lets you provide things for a test. Um, you know, and maybe you don't need everything because you're just testing a very simple scenario. So you can pick and choose and, and kind of set, set up your module, quote unquote, because it's, uh, it's, it's in a test. It's not a real module uh, the way that you want. Uh, so this is one of the really powerful tools that the, the test framework gives you. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the test bed is really interesting because if you think about it, you're setting up the Angular environment that this test will run in. So, like, what environment does that that component that you're about to test live in while the tests are running? And what makes that interesting is it, think about how many tests you may have to run in an application. Uh, if it's a decent-sized application, you may have hundreds, uh, if not thousands, possibly, of unit tests that would need to run in a pipeline in order to ensure that, you know, your app is ready for production, that can actually go. All these unit tests have passed. So how long does that take to run? Well, if I had to spin up the entire application every time I ran one test, well, then that would be, I would take a lot of time. So this test bed is a much smaller footprint, and I only have to provide in that little box, that container, uh, only what's needed uh, for that specific situation. And as we're going to get into later, 
It even gives you the ability to pass things that are representative of pieces, but not the actual pieces, which is also super powerful. So I think testbed is a great feature. I agree. Yeah, awesome. Cool. So I think there's just two other um, like main pieces to an anatomy of the test that people will frequently use. And then I think we'll get into some of those examples uh, you're referring to, which is like actual mocking of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, the last two things I want to talk about quickly are the life cycle of tests. So much like um, you know, an angular component, it has life cycle hooks. Uh, tests also have life cycle hooks. So with normal unit testing, you don't guarantee the order in which tests will run. Um, So you have to be careful that your tests don't um, negatively impact each other. And the way that you can typically do that is you have, um, you know, two main lifecycle hooks that we've used, which is uh, the before each and the after each. And much like you were describing the hierarchy of the describe and it block, basically you do a before each, um, you know, and then inside of the before each, you can define all the different tests that you want to run, um, you know, with those uh, parameters in place. And in a before each, maybe you want to set up some like object to have a default state, right? So that, that you always want it to be that state before it starts running uh, the test that it's going to run. Um, you know, because it's JavaScript, right? So if you have a variable declared outside and you change it, it's going to be different in each test. The before each lets you kind of reset that value uh, each time. Like say it's a behavior subject or something like that you want to reset it back to some value that might be useful. Um, and then the after each is really nice for, you know, tearing things down. Um, so say you've, um, you know, you've created some mocks or you've, you know, created some spies, which I'll talk about in a second. And you want to get rid of those because you don't want that to impact other tests. You want to maybe call through some logic. Um, you can use an after each to tear it down. Um, so the lifecycle hooks are really useful for uh, setting up scenarios that multiple tests are going to need in order to operate uh, the tests effectively. Uh, and then the last thing is the spies. Um, so spies are part of the Jasmine framework. Uh, and what they let you do is it, it lets you um, hook into and emulate external calls. So we made the example of uh, the authentication service you were saying before, which is I want to validate that the save token was called. I don't want to actually save the token because it doesn't like I don't need to test that. So what you do is, is you spy on that method and you say, hey, um, you know, did this spy detect that it was called? Right. That's how you know it was actually fired. And when I do call this, just return out because I don't actually want to call any of the logic inside of it. Um, so it's really good for <coughs> emulating your calls and, and then also hooking in to make sure that the uh, the expected behavior happened in this case, that it was actually uh, invoked as a method. Um, so, I mean, those I think are, are pretty good foundational building blocks of what, you know, you're going to use in, in a unit test when you write one in Angular. Uh, anything you want to add to that? Um, no, I just think that the um, the spies are uh, a very, very, very useful tool. Um, you know, there's so many times where uh, you want to know not only was something called, but how many times was it called? Was it called more than once? Because if it was, that's not good, you know, or, or as an example. So you can say not only were you called, but were you called one time, two times, three times? Like how, how many times? Because you can actually fail based on that as well. Um, you know, the, the, the spies really give you a lot of 
power in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I almost always have to write them. I can't really remember most tests without using them. Uh, because, you know, in, in most tests, uh, you know, you're, you're interacting with some external source, right? Whether it's uh, storage or an API or, you know, uh, whatever the case is. Uh, and you don't want to test those every single time, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, so now that we've kind of hopefully explained some of the scenarios and some of the the basic building blocks, I think something that deserves its own segment uh, because it's a, it is a, cha- I think a challenge that a lot of people face when they get started with unit testing. It's certainly a, a challenge from a, a, a time and organizational perspective. And that's, uh, that's mocking. So mocking things in our, in our applications. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you want to just maybe start, what is a mock? Why, why do I need to mock things? Why can't I just run my code and test it? What's the point of all of this? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, when we talk about what, what is a mock, you know, it, it's something that's going to be a stand-in for the real thing. You know, uh, it's a static object. Um, well, it's usually a static object. And uh, it has, uh, you know, it's a similar structure, possibly, to the real thing. But it's only going to expose the things it needs to for this test. It's only going to show the things that it has to. Uh, and, and it's a stand-in because let's imagine that you're in a scenario where you have a bunch of dependencies uh, in this component. All right, You have a lot of things that are being injected via the constructor. Uh, you're bringing in services and you're bringing in um, you know, all different kinds of pieces. And now let's imagine one of the things that this component de- depends on. Uh, is a service that itself depends on multiple other things. Well, now we've got a chain of responsibility, right? Like I have to bring in the real auth service, which also, by the way, needs the real cookie service because the cookie service is how we store the token. So like you can see how this could cascade. And eventually you get to the point where you're loading up your entire app again, which is not the point of a test. The point of a test is to only test what we need to test. So if I'm in a component, do I really want to test that the service is doing what it's supposed to do? The answer to that is no. I I should know what the service is supposed to do and mock that out and then simulate it or emulate it, as you were saying. Um, And that's it. You know, I don't need to verify that the service does its job. I'm just going to pretend like it did its job because then I'll verify that the component reacts correctly, not that the service is doing its job. And that separation during unit testing is is huge. If you don't do that, if you don't separate out your concerns and only test the thing that you're zeroed in on, well, then why would you even write uh, unit tests for the service? Because it's just being called in the components and they'll handle it. Like, where's your, where do you end the line? Where do you draw the line? Like, it, it becomes very murky. And so these mocks give us a way of providing things uh, that your component or whatever needs but you don't have to provide the real thing. You can provide this static piece. Yeah. And like, so the scenario that you laid out, that's like really awesome with mocks is, so say, you know, say I'm doing something and, um, you know, I want to get the current user, right. And I want to get the value of the current user in a component. Um, 
you know, let's just even say I do cross over into some of the, the, the service things when I'm testing, you know, that service depends on a lot of things, right? Because it's handling all the authentication. So for instance, it needs the cookie service, like you mentioned, in order to get the token, because that's where it's being stored. But something else that you're not even maybe thinking of is the logout functionality is there. And what do we do when you log out? We route you. So you also have a dependency on the router. But when I'm getting the current user, there's no way I care about the router. Like it just has literally nothing to do with what I'm testing, uh, and it won't ever. You know, it, it never, it, it will never come into play. So the last thing I want to have to do <laughs> in my test bed for you know looking at current user stuff is deal with the router. Like I just don't care about it. Um, right. So you know, mocking out the service lets it so that you know you're saying, hey, I only care about this piece. This is all I actually need. To have, uh, you know, to, to have access to or to, to be available to me, um, you know, so so that's kind of like a, a scenario I like to give where it's a little more clear, you know, the delineation of why <laughs> you don't need something like it just doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, so how about like, um, you know, uh, let's let's maybe expand on that scenario a little bit more. Right. So if I'm mocking my auth service in, in a scenario like that, or maybe one you want to, you want to talk about, um, what does that mock like look like, you know, how, sure. does it, how does it come together? Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. So, um, if I have my test bed and I want to be able to pull via dependency injection, the auth service, then it needs to be provided in that test bed somewhere. Uh, cause if it's not provided, how do you pull it via dependency injection? But instead of providing the auth service, the real one, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to use provider statements, uh, which have two components uh, to them or two properties. One is what am I providing? And the other one is what am I using as a value to do that? And so when we say we're providing with a provider statement, the auth service, well, that's what we're telling the dependency injection system that we are providing. That's what we're saying is coming. However, when we say use value, we can put whatever we want in there. It's not like the dependency system in the test bed is verifying that the thing that we provided is in fact the thing that we provided. Instead, it's saying, well, okay, you're providing this service and that's what I'll use for dependency injection during these tests. Um, but it's this object and you know, I, I guess it's I guess it's fine. And so now this use value statement may only contain an object with one method in it, just one method. And that one method may be get current user in your scenario. Right. And maybe, maybe the actual get met the method there, that get current user, maybe it doesn't even return anything. Maybe it returns null. Because if we're planning on spying on that method anyway, and we're going to probably via the spy return specifically the data that we plan to return in during that unit test, well, then I don't need the actual object in dependency injection to return anything. What I need it to do is have a method that is the method I plan to spy on. And that's that's all it has to have. So yeah, that's kind so, of the example. Yeah. And so just to circle back, like when you say the provider statement, that's like it, it, maybe some people have seen where you are passing an object in instead of just like an actual service reference. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you know, and then that the properties of that object are what you were talking about, which is the provider and the use value. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, the nice thing is, is like you said, is it doesn't enforce that you conform to the interface of 
you know, it's just like a token, right? It's saying, hey, you know, Angular, when you see that you need this thing, I'm, I want you to use this value, right? So that it doesn't enforce that you follow any sort of standard or anything like that, uh, like like implementing an interface would. It's just, it's like a token, it's like a key value thing. Right. Um, you know, so the... So the Sorry, I was just going to say the problem with that is, you know, you have to make sure that you do put on it the things you're actually trying to to access or validate, right? So you can't spy on the current value method if it's not on the mock, you know, that you're passing in, right? Yeah, so you, it'll you don't actually have to write everything. Yeah, you don't have to write everything, but you have to put in the things that you're actually uh, testing against. And this is where it saves time because, you know, it, it is work. You have to create the mock and things like that, but you don't have to write any logic for it. And you don't have to include things that you're not using in this test configuration, which is really nice. Yep, I agree. And I just uh, want to throw out another word that I think people may have heard that fits this scenario pretty well. We're talking about a mock because that's what that's when you look at unit testing, that's exactly what they're going to call this thing. But another way to think of it is a stub. You know, it's just a stub object that has the methods that you expect it to have, but they don't do anything. Um, you know, they're just there as like a stand-in for something. So sometimes you, you will hear that referred to as a stub. Uh, so just another terminology that might get thrown out at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so anything else you want to touch on mocking before we, we kind of move on? I think we want one more thing to cover quickly and then we'll, we'll go into some gotchas. I think it's great. Let's yeah, move on. Cool. All right. So last, uh, piece that's important for unit testing. And as you know, this has certainly been a great tool for us because, you know, we're in the boat, um, where we are not perfect developers, Chris, we are not anointed. Um, we did not write unit tests when we first started, right? So we had a bunch of legacy code without unit tests. How dare we? We should be shunned. Yeah, we're we're only recently converted, <laughs> I guess you could say. <laughs> but see the light. We, we are strong supporters now. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. So, um, so one of the things that we've been working on and are still working on and will be working on, I'm sure, for quite some time, is uh, you know introducing unit tests into our projects. And one of the things that is has been very helpful in doing that is having a good code coverage tool. And you know, at a very high level, what code coverage is is what it does is it it looks at your unit tests, it looks at your uh, actual code. And it, it traverses it to see, you know, if you have a unit test that covers this scenario, right? So if I have a method that says, you know, uh, get name, and I have a test that calls get name, that method is considered covered, right? If I have an if statement in get name, and I pass in true or false, right? And I have a test for get name, and I only do a test for true, then the statement is covered, but the branches aren't totally covered, right? Because I have an if else that I'm not going into both things. Um, so it does that analysis and comparison, and it gives you a percentage um, <coughs> as like a metric on where your code coverage is at. Uh, and the tool that we actually use is called Istanbul. I think it's a pretty common code coverage tool um, for uh, you know for JavaScript frameworks, but you know you can use whatever you want. And that's been really helpful for us in identifying, um, you know, where are the aspects of the application to spend most of our time? What's still remaining? Uh, what are we comfortable not testing? Uh, and you can get that report and go and look at it. I don't have to like compare and contrast the unit tests like 
myself, I like by eyeballing it, I can just look at that report and see, okay, these methods aren't covered in these classes, and these are the percentages. Um, so it, it's a really useful tool. Um, we don't get too caught up in the percentages, though, right? I mean, well, what what does it really do for us from a metric standpoint? Yeah, and and it, you have to be you have to be super careful actually when it comes to code coverage metrics because if you just say okay, uh, everything needs to be 90% covered uh, in our projects. If that's what you do, well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an analogy here. Uh, there used to be uh, a way, way back in the day, oh, that you would, you would pay programmers by the lines. How many lines of code is this thing? Because that's how much I'll pay you based on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the stories from that era basically tell us, well, we'll we'll make as many line breaks as we possibly can in order to get paid more. You know, uh, so in, if you, the story I'm trying to relay here is that code coverage can be the same problem. If you're dealing with a 90% code coverage minimum, well, then as long as I call a method, it's covered, right? Like yep. that's now covered. So all I have to do is call it. I don't have to actually come up with real good test scenarios in order to have that code coverage metric be 90. It just means I called it and something occurred, but it doesn't even verify that the tests were good tests. So uh, just using code coverage alone is a bad idea. Uh, however, using code coverage to find your gaps is probably a good idea. Yeah, it relates to kind of like a management thing that I've heard as I've been you know, trying to learn and become a better manager um and i'm gonna butcher the phrasing but basically it's like if you create a target people will shoot and achieve that target so if your target is to increase your percentage of code coverage people will increase the percentage of code coverage if your target is to have code that is tested and is reliable then people will shoot to that target and those two objectives don't always line up parallel right so like they're not always going to go towards the same point which is not parallel so i made a bad uh an there. but uh you <laughs> but, know what i mean uh, uh, we all understand what you're saying <laughs> for sure for uh, sure i mean by the way there is a there is a absolutely fantastic article uh that covers these kinds of scenarios uh things that people have done across history to try and spur a certain behavior that have horribly horribly backfired uh, and not produce the behavior that they wanted. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, that's that's a whole topic that is not development related all to itself. Maybe I'll drop into the show notes. Uh, I know I have a, a good link for um, a video on that subject that talks about um, utilizing um, how uh, I, I think it was Brazil that wanted to reduce emissions. So they said that certain driver certain license plates can only run on certain days. Uh, and then, uh, or like your license plate had to end in a certain number to run on a certain day. So what they did is they just bought more license plates and just switched them <laughs> on the cars, which is not what the intention was, of course. So yeah, yeah I mean, a there's a whole thing about that, but let's not get caught up in that. I've already went too far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're fun to talk about. Okay, yep. cool. So let's um let's maybe cover a few uh, gotchas with testing things that we've learned over the past you know year and a half or so of you know writing what I would consider a fair amount of uh, Angular unit tests. 
Um, I think the first one is something that you're uh, you're an expert on and very passionate about. So I'll uh, I'll let maybe you talk about this. And uh, this is certainly something that I've ran into um, when I've written tests, which is that um, which is you know how change detection works with tests and and you know how it's different versus when like a normal component would would happen. Do you want to maybe talk about some of the differences there? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the um... I think the thing to, to know is that when you first start off with unit tests in components, uh, you're going to expect probably that the component acts exactly as it does within your application. But that's not really the case. The test bed is not set up to simulate that environment completely. In fact, uh, it's a good thing that it doesn't do that because what you want to do with your unit tests is you want to test scenarios without having the framework automatically run through the entire life cycle. And that's uh, the part that you need to recognize as a gotcha is that the component doesn't automatically fire off all of its uh, lifecycle stuff. Uh, you have to tell it to do that. Um, so you don't, it doesn't call ng on init unless you tell it to call ng on init. Um, and therefore, change detection is the same situation. You're not actually, like if you're trying to test something in the template, let's say that you have an input element that you're grabbing via a view child. And that input element, you want to verify that it uh, has a certain value within its actual text box. If that's something that you wanted to do, that value in that text box, they don't exist yet because you haven't told them to. And uh, one of the easiest ways to get uh, the kind of behavior, if that's what you're looking for, is to use the fixture. The fixture is a piece from the test bed itself. Um, uh, when you start building out the component unit tests, you have to use a fixture to do it. And the fixture is kind of like this uh, this component, this or that component. I don't want to say component because that's we're already talking about a component. But the fixture is kind of like a, uh, a container, if you will, that holds everything that we're about to do uh, in the actual state of it at that moment. And so what you can do is you can take the fixture and you can call a method on it called detect changes. And once you do that, that entire component now springs to life and it runs through everything it needs to do to get through a change detection cycle. So if it hasn't run ng on in it yet, it's going to write that. Um, but eventually it's going to now detect that everything has changed. So if you then, let's say you did that early on, you did your fixture detects changes in a before each. So that's already happened. And now you made a change to something that's a property within the component that is bound to that input on the template side. If that's the situation, it still isn't going to update until you run fixture detect changes again. So every time that you want a change detection cycle to occur, you have to tell it to do so. And that's the way that you would go about it is by using the fixture. So that's just one example, uh, but certainly just recognize that the, uh, the components themselves are not going to do their normal behavior as if they're showing up on screen until you tell them to do so. Yeah, everything is purposeful in a test versus, yep. you know, in a component, some things happen on their own. Yeah, one of the ones that I um, like to talk about because uh, it was it took so long, I think, for you and I to come up with a, a solution that we were happy with, which is, you know, what about a scenario where you, you create a mock, like a, a mock object or a mock of a service, and you, you know, need it to be in one state or have one value for some tests, but then you needed to change that value for other tests. Um, and we've come across that scenario a couple times 
Um, and, you know, certainly one way to fix it is to just have two test beds, one where you create the mock one way and one where you create the mock another way. Um, you know, but it, it's just like, it's a hard sell for me when I only wanted to change for like one or two scenarios to have a whole separate, you know, test bed and module and stuff like that, just to have it do something like that. So the example that uh, I've had, you know, run into this for is <laughs> when I'm actually mocking the uh, activated route. Um, so Angular has the activated route service. And one of the things that I wanted to test in my component is uh, different query params. So when you're accessing the query parameters, you use the activated route, you pull the query parameters from the URL, and, it, and the component would handle things differently in the ng on init depending on what the parameter is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think that the activated route is like a great example of where you have to have a mock. You know, you, you really need to have that mock in place because if you uh, were to think about it, what the activated route is something that I would need the full-on router to be working within Angular to know which one is active at that moment. Uh, and that's definitely something we want to simulate rather than, you know, have to actually uh, cause to come into being. Yeah, because all I care about is the one thing, which is the query params, right? So I, I'm very focused on what I'm looking at. Um, and so the, the way that we actually uh, achieved that, which I thought was you know pretty clever, is um, basically we, we create the mock like we would normally do. And in this case, we're accessing this, um, the snapshot uh, property. And then inside of the snapshot is a query params uh, ob like property with an object. Mm -hmm. uh, and we define that, you know, at the, at the top level and we inject it into the, the test bed uh, as a, uh, as a mock activated route. And then what I do is I use the before each to reset that value so that I know that each test afterwards is getting that default mock value that I expect. Uh, and then what I can do is inside of the test, I can actually uh, modify um, that value because I use the uh, fixture like you were talking about. Um, well, not necessarily the fixture, but the test bed um, to pull that mock out and assign it to like a variable in the unit test. And I can modify it just for that unit test. Uh, and then because in the before each, I'm resetting it, subsequent tests aren't <coughs> impacted by that change. Yeah, that's an excellent that's an excellent case. That's a really good bring up on that. Yeah, so that's been something that was actually pretty hard to figure out and there's a lot of like articles online that will steer you in different directions, but I think it's a pretty simple solution to just pull it from the test bed, reassign it and then just make sure you're you're defaulting it back in the before each. So it's uh it's pretty cool. I think one of the uh, other things we want to cover here though is uh timing based tests. Man, those have mm -hmm. really bitten us a few times uh do you want to yeah. talk about how you can get around like a debounce scenario because yeah. i mean that's that's like you know the like our search input as an example where we we talk about having a debounce on that because as you're typing a bunch of stuff into a search bar you know you don't want to have it fire off the search every time somebody puts in a letter yeah, and these are always a little tricky when you're first writing tests to figure out that this is the problem you're having because timing-based things with JavaScript is, is, I think, always a tough problem to to figure out. Um, you know, so one of the things that I really like to use is something in the um, the, the Jasmine framework called a tick. 
Uh, and what a tick does is it puts like an implicit weight essentially inside of your unit test. So let's say, for instance, we uh, are testing our search, which I think has a default debounce of like 300 milliseconds before it actually fires the search. So what you would do is you would uh, trigger the search value. You'd call your fixture.detectChanges because, you know, you're having some property binding things that are going on. And then after you call that, you would fire off a tick and you would probably set your tick to be 400 milliseconds. Because what you're going to probably do at the end of that test is assert that the the action that was taken after the debounce occurred. Like maybe it assigned a variable, maybe it called a service method, whatever the case is. Um, so you just need the unit test to wait um, for the action to, to complete in order to actually um, you know, trigger the, the following test. Um, so that's that's the way that I've found is most is the simplest um, you know way to get around that is to just put some implicit weights uh, inside of your your tests. I don't know. Have you have you done any other timing based stuff without using tick? Yeah, I mean the the one that I've done before too. Uh, in addition to the using the tick, is uh, that you can make the test itself uh, something that is a. a not automatically completed. Uh, I think it's called async, uh, yep. which it's just funny because I don't really think of it as being async. That's like a word that gets thrown around in programming and has slightly different meanings depending on the context. <laughs> but in this situation, uh, when you put it into a test, uh, you're using an async concept, which says that when I hit the end of this code, that test isn't done yet. And instead, you have to provide a done token, essentially that says, okay, yep, we're done now. This test has been completed, which which allows you to write things that might be involving observables or subscriptions that you don't know the timing of. You don't know how long it's going to take to get to that point. But when it does get to that point, and I finally have made a determination, I'll call done to let it know when I'm done. Yeah. Um, they're a little more complicated to set up, but uh, I've definitely run into scenarios where they were the right way to go. For sure, yeah, definitely two uh, two different things there um, to to run by. Okay, cool. I think we're um, running a little short on time. Is there anything else you wanted to cover in the gotchas before we move on to our final thoughts? No, no. I think that was a that was a good bit. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so you know my you know my takes on unit tests are are pretty simple. They're great. I love them. Um, I will admit that I was the type of person that was like. Um, this is going to be really hard. We have to learn so much. It's going to take so much time. I don't know if it's actually worth it. All of these things. I was that person that was, was stating those things. But, you know, I also listened to, you know, what's going on in the industry. And the industry says tests are good. Um, so it's worth looking into. And I'll say I was hooked ever since the very first time I wrote a line of code and I ran the tests and something failed. And something failed that I would have never in a million years thought would have failed because of the change I made. And I just know right then and there, I prevented a bug, you know, because I wrote a test six months ago. I prevented a bug six months later. Um, and, and I've never been more confident in our code. I've never been more uh, trustworthy in it and reliable in it. Um, everything that I said, though, is true. It is it is a learning curve. It does take more time. It will be something you have to you have to work on, uh, and you'll 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 fight through. But it is so worth it. 
uh, when you get to the point where it starts uh, reaping its rewards. So um, I love it. I think it's awesome. I definitely want people to be encouraged to explore it more and, and try it out. Yeah, I think it's also something that uh, it depends on your project situation, your project team situation. Uh, for us, as an example, uh, it's very possible that we're going to work on something uh, that will affect uh, a project team down the road uh, that we don't even know who they're going to be yet. You know, uh, as an example, uh, if we were to create unit tests for one of our projects, uh, it's very possible that it goes into production. Uh, it's now uh, out there and it's being used in the world. Uh, we have some feedback that someone wants to make some changes. And then the person who's working on that feedback has never seen this project ever. They don't know anything about it. Uh, they've been introduced to it about a half an hour ago. And now they're being told to make feedback changes, which maybe those feedback changes are really small. So that's probably appropriate. But if they have an impact on something that they don't understand or something that they don't see because it's not easy to know where things are connected in a project you just were thrown into, that is the time that unit tests really, really pay off. Because that person is either going to have confidence that they're going to be pushing this right or they're not. And, uh, you know, the unit tests are all the difference. So it's not just you that benefits from writing these tests. It's really the stability of the entire group that you're working with. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more with that. The refactoring and all that stuff, it, it, it makes, you know, makes everything a lot better. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, and, you know, including yourselves in our unit testing dialogue, as always, we, I uh, would love to hear from you on Twitter if you have any questions or uh, comments about the the topic and the things you'd like to hear more of or less of. Let us know. Uh, I'm at John Graham Dev, G-R-A-H-A-M. And Chris is at Pilgrim Secret on Twitter. You can always reach out to us. A quick plug. I did a blog, a short blog, very quick to read about some Angular unit testing uh, on an interesting scenario I had where I was testing keyboard shortcuts. And it actually took me quite a long time to figure out how to do it. And it was a very simple solution in the end. Um, so uh, if anybody wants to check that out, you can just go to johngram.dev, G-R-A-H-A-M, just like the, the Twitter handle, johngram.dev. Uh, and it's the latest blog post I have there. Um, so yeah, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, Chris, if you want to plug uh, plug anything else. Well, I just think uh, we should mention that uh, you know we have... Uh lots of developer positions here at milestechnologies.com. We're always looking for good talent. Uh, so if you can go to uh, www.milestechnologies.com slash careers, uh, you'll be able to you know apply for a job here. Maybe that's yeah. something that you, you are interested in working as a developer in Lumberton, New Jersey. I hope so, because we'd love to meet you. Yeah. Just launched a new website too. It's pretty cool, actually. It uh, looks pretty nice. So yeah and check it out all right great well thanks everybody for listening and tuning in we hope to hear from you uh on the twitterverse or online um and uh we'll see you again uh next time thanks yep thanks everybody thanks so much